0: If I stopped and invited you to share what you love about living in this place, Noblesville and Hamilton County, we'd have a list a mile long, wouldn't we? So many wonderful things to do, especially this time of year. Uh, There's more things to do than we have time for, isn't there? got Connor Prairie and the Symphony on the Prairie, the Rudolph Home Mortgage Center. There's free concerts taking place in many parks, all kinds of amenities to enjoy nice restaurants. You don't even have to go to Indianapolis, but if you want to, Indianapolis is right there. You may be aware that Hamilton County is the ninth richest county in the United States. This county has the highest median home values in the state at $240,000. And part of what makes Hamilton County such a great place is it's just full of successful people, even those that run for office, usually brings such great capabilities. They're tough choices to enjoy. I know that Janus Developmental Services has literally made this county a destination place for people who moved here because of the services that are provided for their adult special needs persons. And I've told people that for the first time in my life, I actually enjoy going to church meetings. It's literally true. This church has such wonderful people, I learn something every time I go, I actually enjoy gathering together. And you will not hear very many preachers say that, (laughs) will you? But I do. It has to be one of the greatest places to live in this country. We have a 96% high school graduation rate in this county compared to 87%. We have a 55% college graduation rate, and 20% of our population have experienced some type of grad school beyond college as well. Someone told me that that a nearby High school, out of 487 graduates, 371 graduated with honors. So there's serious competition. It's in the competition point now with graded, weighted uh, classes that you can get a a GPA higher than 4.0, that you can have a 4.0 and still not be a valedictorian. And, boy, the competition for those scholarships is very intense around here. And here's the important thing to consider. You know, college isn't for everybody. People can be very successful going to grade school. you got the issue of of college student debt. Often it's not unusual to have $50,000 in student loan debt. So all these expectations come with a cost. With success comes expectations, sometimes unrealistic expectations that are not always appropriate for every every person. One of our high school youth in the church uh, said, you know, we hear the phrase, dress for success. She says in this area, the phrase should be stress for success. It does describe the culture here. I, I actually know one family that moved out of Noblesville because they realized early on that their child probably, with the challenges that he has, will probably not do well. He'll probably not end up in college and, they didn't want to live in a community where the expectation was that you'll go to college. They felt they were setting him up for failure. In 2015, Riverview Hospital did a health assessment for Hamilton County. They found that more than half of area residents are at least moderately stressed on a typical day. At least half moderately stressed. Our student ministry directors, Tom and Janelle, have shared with me more than one occasion that they have to deal with with uh, stress in their students all the time, that they have more than once recently have had to respond to suicidal thoughts. Fortunately, they're well trained in that, and they've dealt with them well. So we literally live in a culture where failure is not an option. Failure is not something we talk about, but failure is a part of life. It's a necessary part of life. Failure sometimes is part of discovering the path that God intends for your life. So what we want to do in this series, Failure is Not Fatal, is to look at the Bible and try to discover God's measure of success. Hopefully we'll let that be redefined for us. And we're going to do so by taking an in-depth look at four biblical f- characters who are very flawed characters and still God used them in amazing ways. So today we're taking a look at at King David. You know there's more written about David in the Old Testament than any other character in the Old Testament? You'll find there are 64 chapters dedicated to David. There are 59 New Testament references to this great man. David is the most complex and developed character in the scriptures except for the person of Jesus. Jesus. You can read about David's life in 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, and 1 Chronicles. But also you can get a glimpse of the inside of David through some of the songs. We believe that he actually wrote some of the songs and certainly commissioned some of the psalms as well. In Hebrew, David means beloved. And you'll find in 1 Samuel 13, 14, he is described as a man after God's own heart. He was born in 1040 B.C. to the son of Jesse. He's described as handsome and ruddy with beautiful eyes. He was an unlikely king, a shepherd boy. But he was God's chosen by the prophet Samuel to replace King Saul. We get a good glimpse of David. When we look at the story that comes early on, we're going to face the, Goli- the giant Goliath. That story, you know how that goes. Goliath comes decked out in his latest designer soldier wear, David comes to him with a sling and a prayer. And David is described as keeping his shepherd's staff with him. What are you going to do with a shepherd's staff in a battle? But he does sort of remind us of his real occupation. He's a shepherd boy, not a soldier. He chooses five small, smooth stones from a nearby creek. He puts them in his pouch, and he goes forward to meet the giant. Goliath is insulted and he says to those gathered, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And David responds with words of his own, you come at me with sword, spear, and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel. And David promptly takes his stone and sling and plants that stone in the brain of Goliath. There's a bunch of other gory, messy stuff that he does with his head. I'll let you read that on your own, <laughs> if you're into that kind of thing. But what does this episode tell us about David? Is he an opportunist ready to replace King Saul, or is he someone who really wants to assort the authority and power of our Lord God Almighty? Is he in love with himself, or is he truly in love with God? Matthew Parker points out that sometimes we look at David and we see him in these stories when he's good and then we see him in stories where he's bad and we make that assumption that in the good stories he's being faithful to our Lord and in the bad stories he's backslidden terribly. But Matthew Parker suggests that that's not the real David and that's really not the real us when we face life. Life is never that black and white. You know, if you're like me all the time, I need to be examining my motives and and why I do certain things. You hope you're doing things for the right ways, but you know that relationships are complicated. Life is complicated. Sometimes we do the right things for the wrong reasons. Sometimes we do the wrong things for other reasons. It's human nature to constantly seek our way. And if we want to have healthy relationships with the people we love and interact with, we need to come to grips and to terms with that. And in David, we get to see that vividly played out for us. I hope that you can allow yourself to not look so black and white with David, but perhaps to see yourself in him and both the good things he does and the bad things he does. Because sometimes he makes good choices and things don't always just pan out that well for him. At other times, he makes bad choices and we discover it is not the end of the world that God is still there with him. So let's fast forward a little bit. We find that David is now king. And he's at the height of his glory. The Israel nation, Israelite nation is no longer just a, a, a bunch of loosely related tribes affiliated together. Now they're a nation. They're one nation. and Their borders have expanded. The security has increased. And now David... Has the luxury of staying home and governing instead of having to be out at battle all the time. He's been successful enough that he can get other people to fight his battles. He now has several wives. Eight of them are named, and if you read Second Samuel chapter five, you discover that they had many more. kind of part of the game in those days. You use wives as property to form alliances and 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 secure your nation, and your power. King Solomon, who followed David, it says, had 700 wives and 300 concubines in that game. And in those times, kings were considered almost like gods. They could do almost anything they wanted except in the nation of Israel. The king was still subject to the commandments that had been handed down by David, not just the common person, I need to apologize to women here because if you read this story in great detail, you'll find that things don't go well for Bathsheba and she is barely even considered in this. All it does to describe her feelings are is that she mourned the loss of her husband. And we find the tragedy of a child's life that is lost and a mother who loses her child. I hope you can put Away, our modern sensibilities just enough so that you can hear what you need to hear out of this story. It's just the way things were in ancient times. So let me give you a quick summary. King David is out looking over his kingdom at the palace. Of course, he's got the tallest building in town. That's the way it should be, right? And he looks out over and he sees on a nearby rooftop, which would be a private place in most occasions, and Bathsheba is bathing. She's not being an exhibitionist. That's the spot where you would take a bath. And there's something that attracts her to David. He inquires about who she is and discovers that she is Uriah's wife. And that is significant, because Uriah very clearly is a part of King David's inner military corps. They're the ones who have been with him from the very beginning. They're the ones he trusted. The fact that that her rooftop is close by the palace is a sign that he surrounded himself with that military corps to ensure his safety and his power, which makes his deed even worse. He calls for Bathsheba, be brought to him, he lies with her, and she becomes pregnant. And he thinks a very ingenious way to cover it all up. He commands for Uriah to be brought home. He would enjoy the marital fruit, and then th- all things would would be swept under the rug, except that Uriah, in contrast to his morality, chooses not to enjoy the fruit of his marriage while his men are out doing battle. David even tries to get him drunk. That doesn't work either. And so when he goes back out the battlefield, David basically commits the act of murder by calling for the troops to be brought back so that he's out on the front line and loses his life in the battle. He thinks things are all now under control and Bathsheba is brought into his harem and life is good except that one year later, even though there is no free press, God's got prophets and he sends the prophet Nathan to him who does something really Jesus-like. He tells a parable, tells a story that just sucks David into it so much that it gets his eye up that he shouts out, as the Lord lives, the man who has done, these, done this deserves to die. And all Nathan has to do is say, you are the man. Now, I want you to stop and just pretend you don't know the end of the story. and Just imagine the options that David has available. He could command Nathan to stop and never say a word about this again. He could have Nathan put to death right here on the spot. Kings had that kind of power in ancient times. He covered it up once. He could cover it up again. But instead, something about how Nathan brought that story caused him to repent. Have you ever made a mistake in a relationship? Have you ever done something you wish you could take back? Words that were never said? Poor choices that maybe led to a downward spiral in a relationship? Some action that's left a scar for you and for a particular relationship? I imagine just about everybody in this room has got something you wish you could have a do-over with. I know I do. So I hope that you consider what David did here. That David became human again. His heart was softened. He discovered there were consequences to his action. He just didn't get away scot-free. But he had retained enough humility that he could recognize his failure and seek out God's forgiveness. The tradition is that Psalm 51 are words written by David in response to his confrontation with the prophet Nathan. Would you recite this psalm with me and let it speak for you if you've had a relational failure? Have mercy on me, God, according to your faithful love. Wipe away my wrongdoings according to your great compassion. Because I know my wrongdoings. My sin is always right in front of me. That's why you are justified when you render your verdict. Completely correct when you issue your judgment. And And yes, you want truth in the most hidden places. You teach me wisdom in the most secret space. Let me hear joy and celebration again. Let the bones you crushed rejoice once more. Create a clean heart for me, God. Put a new faithful spirit deep inside of me. Turn the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me with a willing spirit. I hope you could hear some words that speak to your heart and they can become your prayer to God as well. So what do we learn from David? We learn that life is messy. Relationships are hard. We've learned that God likes using flawed people. We learn that we should live our lives by grace. We are all only here by the grace of God. We learn that God values relationship over being right. We could all be so focused on that being right and living in that little corner of truth in our world, but if it fails to bring life to another, what good is it? David's story declares there are consequences to our failures. But David's story shows that God's primary trait is to restore and renew. There is no sin that cannot be forgiven. And we learn that saying, I'm sorry, is a good thing. Repentance and confession are valuable. So let's live into David's words. Create a clean heart for me, God. Put a new faithful spirit deep inside of me. Let us pray. Lord our God, we each would like a do-over, but we know that we can't take those things back, those words back. But we do know that you do work with us. We learn, we grow, and sometimes those failures become a part of who we are, and that makes us who we need to be. We utilize our wounds, our failures, our struggles to make us the people you call us to be. We in so many ways are like David, Both the good and the bad, and everything in between. This is our prayer in this day through Christ our Lord. Amen. At this time,